0: When everything feels upside down, culture is what holds us together. It's the songs that soundtrack our morning commute and our quarantine living room dance parties. Or that beckon us down to the bar to find someone to make out with. It's the shows we binge and the books we read to wind down after a hard day at work. And it's the meals we cook to remember our grandmothers.
1: It's an excuse to get out of the house and go sit in a dark theater on a Saturday afternoon. And a litmus test for finding other people who see the world like we do. It's the thing that gives our lives meaning when it's hard to make sense of anything at all. I'm Andrea Dominic. And I'm Emily Friedlander.
0: Welcome to The Culture Journalist. A podcast about the Wild West of culture. And culture journalism. In the year 2020. Think of it as your guide to understanding the arts, technology, and a shifting labor landscape through the lens of culture reporting. Hosted by us, two freelance journalists from opposite sides of the country.
1: Hey guys, welcome to The Culture Journalist. Earlier this season, we did an episode about the live music industry's fight for survival during the pandemic. And this week, we're turning to how musicians themselves are navigating this time. One where the internet is pretty much the only avenue where people can safely consume music, but also not exactly the easiest place to make a living.
0: That's right. And at the start of the pandemic, we saw touring, which had far and away been the biggest income source for the majority of musicians, get indefinitely put on hold. And we saw the entire industry go online. And along with that came this proliferation of live streams, community fundraisers, benefit concerts, and artists exploring other novel ways of using the internet to connect with fans.
1: But this new so-called digital hustle is a double-edged sword. Even if artists are live streaming more than ever before, drawing consistent revenue from those broadcasts is a different story, and nobody seems to have really come up with a solution. Bandcamp Fridays have made a big impact as far as reminding people that the best way they can support artists is through purchasing music and merch. But many artists feel weird doing self-promotion at a time when so many people are having a hard time or even lost their jobs. Artists accustomed to recording in the studio are having to adapt to making music from home, often with a limited budget, for investing in new equipment. And even if they do keep putting new music out into the world and engaging with fans, they can sometimes feel like they're doing more work than ever for smaller and smaller returns.
0: At the same time, there's also been a ton of innovation. It's seven months into the pandemic, and there's a bunch of new artist-first platforms, social networks, and initiatives that are now proving essential for not only helping musicians make ends meet, but also fostering a newfound sense of community, self-reliance, and organization in what has otherwise been a historically disconnected and disenfranchised workforce. We're seeing artists band together to call attention to the structural issues that got us into this mess in the first place. And there's also a solidarity in the area that makes you hope that, you know, once things do get up and running again, this year of reckoning will have changed the music industry for the better. So
1: today we're going behind the scenes with two of our favorite artists, New York via Miami DJ and producer Jubilee and Los Angeles composer Shruti Kumar, founder of Sound Travels, one of these new by musicians for musicians resources launched during the pandemic we'll discuss what the digital hustle has been like for them and the challenges and possibilities they're navigating right now.
0: And now we would like to welcome to the pod, Jess Gentile, aka Jubilee. She is an internationally touring DJ and producer who has been grinding on live streams since the onset of the pandemic, advocating for her community. We are so stoked to have her here to talk about the digital hustle, the particular challenges and trials, technological hurdles, and new territory. Jess, thank you so much
2: for coming on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I I wish we were doing this in real life, to be honest, because I miss you guys. (laughs) Oh, we miss you too. (laughs) We miss you too.
0: I know you had a pretty loaded summer ahead of you, some new music you were going to release, hitting the road a lot. Take us back to March. What what was this year supposed to look like for you work-wise?
2: This whole time I've been doing this, which is a long time, I didn't really start feeling comfortable until like a year ago, even after doing this for 10 years. Mm. And this was kind of the first year that I was like, oh, I have the whole year booked instead of like last minute things all the time and wondering if I was going to die or not. (laughs) So I had the first time where I felt secure for the year. I wasn't like freaking out about having work in the future. When March hit,
1: you found out that events were starting to be canceled, festivals were starting to be canceled. How did you see that affecting you at first? And what happened?
2: I am a pretty realistic person. So immediately I was like, I'm not DJing for the rest of the year. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like I just got back from Asia a couple months before. And my friends there were literally hitting me up like, what is your country doing? You're never going to get out of this if your country doesn't get it together. Mm -hmm. And also, I have anxiety and fear of everything falling apart and coming to shit anyways, because I'm an artist. I mean, obviously, I was freaking out. But I was kind of the only one out of my friends that was like, we're not coming back for a long time. Also, I was in New York where it was like doomsday. I live in Midtown in New York City. Well, not anymore because I pandemic moved to Brooklyn. But when this was going on, we were like in the middle of the most crowded part of New York. (laughs) I was just, this is like the walking dead. This is insane. And just from seeing that alone, New York shuts down, half the world shuts down, basically.
0: How soon to the pandemic hitting did you then find out that your tour and other gigs were canceled? And then what was your response to that? What did you have to then immediately do to kind of adjust to that?
2: It was very close to Winter Music Conference. So I had all these Miami gigs booked like I do every year. The first thing that got canceled early on was I was supposed to do the three style finals in Russia. That got canceled like way early. I think maybe like March 1st or something like that, before anything shut down. And then from there, clearly everything else for the rest of life was going to get canceled because nobody wanted to even take the risk of trying. What sort of position
1: did this put musicians in? What was the impact economically of this on your garden variety musician, regardless of genre?
2: I mean, this is about 92% of my income. Mm -hmm. (laughs) is touring. So right there, it's just like, hey, you went from being fine for the year to literally nothing. So right then and there, I was like, how's this going to work? Because I am a big enough artist to where I was living off of it. But I think a lot of people don't understand that a lot of us and a lot of artists bigger than me, we book our own flights, we book our hotels, we still, for the most part, have to do a lot of our planning. So a lot of people that were about to tour that got all their stuff canceled, they had to eat all of those flights. One of my friends had an entire tour planned. They had bought all of the flights, thousands of dollars in flights, and then they're not even getting that money back from the shows. And
1: then also the fact that you were a freelancer or independent worker meant it made it difficult to obtain unemployment at first for many musicians. Right. And then also, you know, I think a lot of people don't really understand that musicians aren't really making money off of streaming or record sales very much anymore.
2: Oh, my God. If I have to read one more, like, This person had to get creative. I don't think anybody understands that all of us right now, we're putting in three times the work and making a tenth of the money. Every stream I do is half and half. Some of it's for free because it's for a good cause. In the beginning, I got a couple of really great paid streams, but I think that a lot of people were like, okay, I have this cool budget. How can I book some artists and pay them? But that's all dying out too because it was exciting at first and now everybody's doing it and viewers are starting to lose interest and attention. And also, I hate it. The beginning was fun. Everything was a funny sound check where you learn something new tech wise, which I think is always great to learn some new skills. But it is really boring to DJ in your house when the stuff that you play is pure dance music.
0: Yeah, can you talk a little more about what the challenges that DJs face specifically are?
2: There are certain DJs that only play out that play underground music. They're not making sync money and they're not making Spotify money and stuff like that. They're underground DJs and they already weren't making a lot of money to begin with. And and they're still putting in all the work right now. You know, they're playing streams, they're playing radio stations and they're not getting anything for it. And then There were a lot of DJs in New York that DJed three hotels or clubs a week and that was their full-time job and they've been doing it forever. So they're all screwed too. I have been really fortunate to make a little bit of money off of making music, but that is all little bits of money here and there coming from my album and stuff that I've made in the past that I have no idea when this is going to happen. That was just pure luck. What are some examples
1: of different kinds of digital events you have played, or outlets that you yourself have created in order to keep performing?
2: Just from the beginning, everybody trying a different approach. And booking me, I played a Zoom party and on Twitch and on someone's website that goes to Twitch. And I played for a couple brands, online weekly streams for certain clothing brands and stuff. I started to do twitch shows in the beginning i had like a scheduled show that i was gonna just do a radio show on twitch and then you know all this terrible stuff started happening in new york with nypd and we started going out and protesting a lot and i was like i just don't feel like doing a stream and all this shit's going on (laughs) like look at me while the world's falling apart so i started phone banking because i was like well i'm not making money off of twitch and if i do make money off twitch it might be like a hundred dollars a month There are some DJs that are doing really great streaming, like Four Color Zach has found his calling. If you haven't watched his Twitch show, it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. He's so good at it.
0: What's working
2: for him or the ones that you've seen like that in general? Things like that are really interactive. If you're just DJing a stream, unless you're someone huge, I don't know if a lot of it is going to work. But people like him, he gets on the mic, he answers questions, he makes jokes, He's also like a really good trick DJ to where he does all sorts of great samples and call and response things when he plays music. Kind of like how Kenny Beats does his thing on Twitch and it's it's super interactive. Like people can call in and message him and he'll message them back. If you're not doing that and you don't have that format, then it's not really something you're going to make money off of. Twitch is an extremely, its own weird community with its own language and its own emojis Unless you're familiar with how it works, I don't really know if it would work.
1: Are there still a lot of those popular Zoom parties like Club Quarantine that were making headlines at the beginning? That's still
2: going. I mean, there aren't some great shows that are going. And listen, when I do these things, the people watching are so cool and so happy that I'm doing them. And the streaming community besides that one dude that's like, this sucks the whole time. Everybody else is like really grateful that you're there. And I don't blame them because it's giving them a little bit of life while they're home. But from what I have noticed, it's definitely losing a bit of steam. Are
1: promoters, like promotions companies, booking companies, are they successfully pivoting to be able to put on ticketed events virtually?
2: I've seen a couple of ticketed events that have worked, but I don't really think that's necessarily going to work unless it's someone really popular, like Club Quarantine, who's like gotten a huge following, or someone really famous. Brune did this really cool tour with Bacardi, where the Atlanta stop, like only people in Atlanta could tune in, and I think it was just very local, but it was definitely like something different that nobody had done before.
1: That's interesting.
2: Yeah, I thought it was really cool. And I did my own tour, like right when lockdown happened. I did two weeks where every day I did a different platform. One day I did Twitch. The next day I did Facebook. The next day I did Mixcloud and I made a tour flyer. And all the dates just had the platform that I was on. Oh my God. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That was fun. It was a week full of streams. I maybe got paid for one of them, but that was in the beginning.
1: Yeah, which platform seemed most effective
2: for you? It was hard to tell because when I opened oh, when I opened for Diplo <laughs> that had like a milk so many followers or even the other night Sunday night I did that rave the vote that had like 26,000 viewers so yeah on their twitch it's gonna have that and also which is a funny community where if I'm streaming and certain people want to be supportive they can push my stream on their channel. So a couple artists directed people towards me on their own channel to their own followers. So certain streams of mine had a lot, and then certain ones had like 10 people.
1: Hypothetically, how much would a DJ have to play on these platforms right now to match what they would make in the before times?
2: Um, 24 hours a day?
0: <laughs> wow. Well,
2: no one's making money. And if they are, it's like some influencer... That figured out how to get mad brands to give them money. Or it's like Kenny Beats, who's a genius and has a crazy following. A few people have gotten sponsors, you know. But no, none of us are making money from this. We're all doing 10 times the work for like one-tenth of the pay right now. Wow. And brands know it. All these companies that ask you to do these things, they know that you're going to do it because it's money. So they're really also lowballing everybody, too, because they know we're home with nothing to do. And they know they can get it out of us.
1: It's such a hard time for creatives. I think about this in terms of the work I do in my field, and it feels kind of like the middle class of journalism, for example, is unable to survive.
2: Yeah, it's just really crazy watching The UK and the US just destroy its nightlife (laughs) and like restaurant business and things like New York City, which these things have kept the economy of the city running for God knows how long. It's the city that never sleeps and they're screwing over Broadway and all these reasons people come to New York, restaurants, Broadway and nightlife. And they're just kind of like, oh, sorry. And you're like, dude. (laughs) You wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for all this stuff. And also paying taxes out our ass because we're all individual workers. What's going on in the UK is equally as bad. They basically just told nightlife, that sucks for you. And you have to think about how famous the UK is for its nightlife, for its music. There's entire radio stations like BBC One Extra and Radio One that do with the essential mix and all these totally based on dance music. They just launched a new substation of BBC focused entirely on dance music. And you're going to also cut off the life supply to all of nightlife at the same time. What is happening?
1: Yeah. And in the US, a couple episodes ago, we interviewed folks from NEVA, National Independent Venue Association, I don't know what's going to happen, but they've been pretty successful in launching this big political campaign to save music venues in the United States. Right. With the power of money to hire lobbyists and stuff, you know? But for musicians, I know that there's some music unions, there's a lot of interesting groups that have popped up that are doing cool work, but there's not as much of a sense of the government actually hearing their situation
2: no and i have a couple of friends that were on broadway for like 10 years and it's the same thing as nightlife you know broadway had costume people and ushers and cleaners and i mean the box office people in broadway like some of those old ladies have been working there their whole life and it's the same thing just total disregard for it do you think people are going to come here when all the stuff is gone because they're not
0: This impacted you from a fan retention or engagement standpoint? I've talked to some artists who have said it's actually certain platforms like Noon Chorus or Twitch have been really cool to be able to engage with a ton of fans from all over the world at once or to kind of develop a more sort of intimate relationship. But then on the other hand, there's just no replacing the sweat and connection of a club. No, look.
2: Everybody thinks my Twitter is funny, even though I want to delete that thing. And I have plenty of engagement on that thing. It's never paid my bills once. (laughs) Nothing money has ever come out of that. And I like it. I like the internet. I like people. People are hilarious. They send me funny things every day, funny answers. But it's still not making me money. And it never did. Everywhere I go, it's like, oh, I love your Twitter. I'm like, cool. I also never have been booked in your city. That means nothing. I have gotten new followers. And it has been... From streaming. And I think that a lot of those people wouldn't have seen me if there wasn't streaming. And that's cool. But the people on the internet are not going to go to the club. (laughs) You know,
1: and like, even if you let's say you, you did expand
2: your fan base.
1: What is there to buy? What is the point in which they could support you?
2: Right. And me included. Everybody's doing what we can to throw money everybody's way like hell yeah on Bandcamp day I'm in there and I've spent more money on music than I have in my entire life this year but the more they cut off unemployment and the more people lose their jobs the less it's going to happen and that's what's happening you also have to understand that with unemployment we're not getting what people with normal jobs are getting mm-hmm. some of us are getting $150 a week while they live in New York City it's insane. It doesn't make any sense. Nobody can live off that, even if their rent is paid. More of that money is gonna stop coming in. And I would rather those people not spend that money on me. They need to eat. <laughs> you know, I don't really want anybody's money right now. My rich friends, hell yeah, buy all my merch. Like <laughs> and people have been really, really generous. I'm not gonna lie. But you know, I don't I don't want anybody spending their money on me right now when this country is going through this.
1: Because, for example, people cannot survive on $150 a week in New York City. Do you have any sense that the New York creative community is dispersing across the country?
2: Actually, a lot of people I know have left, which makes me really sad. A lot of people I would have liked to leave have also left, which is kind of cool. I don't think people also understand how bad this is screwing over the arts in the sense that, like, if you're not from this country and you live here, They're like really screwing you. All of these really cool people that brought something cool here now cannot leave here and go home to see their family because they might not get let back in. I don't think a lot of people are thinking about that, but I have a couple of friends here on visas. They're like, I can't see my family because I might not get let back in and I have a whole apartment here. Or they're all moving home. So there's a lot of that going on too. And I just think that everybody's just kind of slowly giving up and leaving. And honestly, I don't have anywhere to go. I have lived here for 17 years and my boyfriend is from here. He's from Queens. So like we don't have home to move to. There's a lot of people like me that are like, well, I actually can't leave and I have to live in this expensive city. and in my whole life, because I've done music or some sort of art It was really easy when things weren't working out. I was like, no, just get a restaurant job, get a catering job. And every single thing you can get like that doesn't exist. That makes
1: sense. Like do you see people dropping out of the quote unquote music workforce and trying to find other kinds of work?
2: Well, I think two things. I think a lot of people are doing that, yes. And I also think a lot of people are secretly rich because of yeah. it's all coming out. You're seeing these streams from their house and you're seeing their parents' house and you're like, oh, you're all good. They left for four months and was they were on the beach and this and that and then they came back. But yeah, there's just a lot of reasons people are leaving. And it's, you know, people that like have been living here for like 15 years and slaved it out in so many different jobs and killed it.
0: What resources are available in the DJ or dance music community? Like, are people organizing? Like Emily mentioned earlier, um, I've heard about people kind of banding together online and sharing tech resources, even peer classes that they're holding to show people how to produce more from home. Are, are, have you encountered any of
2: that? Yeah, there's a ton of that here. I mean, that was already happening here and now it's just bigger and better. But like, you know, there's a couple clubs like nowadays pooled together a fund for people that really needed help, which I thought was really nice. Uh, Jada Lorraine put together that that crazy five-day workshop and it did really well. I am working a little bit, had helping that studio, Pirate Studios, which is this weird studio that I've used in Berlin and UK that opened in both LA and New York like this week. And it's built for what's going on. They are offering really cheap sessions yeah like a lot of the community is really refreshing to see and there for each other and then there's a lot of people that are just being completely reckless and I never want to talk to again so it's kind of like 70 awesome and like 30 I hate you so much when you
1: say reckless (laughs) do you mean people throwing like raves and stuff
2: yeah stuff like that and just Being so insensitive to what's going on right now by the things they say online. or I'm just like, can you just read the room?
1: I just want to shout out this article written by Frankie from Discwoman on the site Dweller called Business Techno Matters, How Those Who Have the Most Sacrifice the Least. I think it was like really widely read and it was about how, first of all, how people in the business techno-industrial complex, as she calls it, (laughs) are throwing unsafe raves in the name of profit and also just this general obliviousness to issues of racial inequality in America.
2: I think that that article is very on point. You know, these people that are doing these raves that Frankie is talking about in this article, they don't need this money right now. But I also think that they are so incredibly clueless that they don't even know they're being assholes. They are so removed and also just do not give a shit about anybody. And their managers are trying to make some money. They don't care. I don't even think they even know what it's like to be broke. My agent even told me right now they're only going to book giant headliners. So when all this stuff comes back, all these people are going to be the ones playing the shows, not us.
1: I wonder, if, is that because probably there'll be limited capacity and they'll want to be able to charge people astronomical ticket prices
2: or something? Right. And it's already happening. That festival that I think it was thrown on by the bang on people. It's just like such and such money. Get a test an hour before coming in and all this stuff. Only certain people can do this. So now it's like ableist raving. Cool. <laughs> you know,
1: <laughs> like... What impact do you think this moment will have on underground music, underground electronic music going forward?
2: I think the underground is going to have to start from scratch. And I have faith in it because it will always be there. I think that parts of it will be really good. People are going to buy new venues. I was here for the other recession.
1: 2008.
2: Yeah, I was just starting to DJ then. And, you know, the club scene thrived after that. When it came back, it was so insane. And I feel like that happened after 9-11 as well. But I also think that things are so different now that it's really unpredictable. So I think that it can either come back really hard and really great. Or Amazon is just going to buy New York and like <laughs> it's a wrap, <laughs> you know?
1: Do you feel like the pandemic has set kind of a dangerous precedent where, you know, everyone now is relying on all these digital platforms, you said, they're performing free labor in order to just, you know, keep up some semblance of a profile and a presence. Do you think that that's going to continue like that this digital hustle aspect of music is going to change what it's like to be a musician?
2: I think that being a musician is always changing and always adapting to the times. The reason I started doing the streaming was because I was like, okay, even when the clubs come back, this is never going to go away. Streaming is here to stay. And people were already trying to do these things anyways. I also think that people want to go out. They want to go to the festivals and they want to go to the clubs. There's going to be people at both. You were talking earlier about there being this kind of
0: economic divide with the people that will get booked, you think, in the future. I've also been thinking a lot about that in terms of the people that will be able to attend these more marquee events in the future. Festivals and nightclubs were already becoming kind of socioeconomically stratified just because they were so expensive as Mm -hmm. it was. And I've been thinking a lot about also what that means for who is then going to be able to attend these events going forward, because that divide is only going to be more intense. And I imagine that, you know, promoters and producers aren't going to be like, okay, we should just lower our ticket prices now. If anything, I imagine they're only going to be higher so they can really milk the people that do have those resources. But given that, then I've also been thinking about how that could lead to a resurgence in the underground. That's sort of how the underground emerged to begin with, right? It was people that have been disenfranchised in one way or another out in society coming together and creating these communities for themselves. And of course, that's not going to solve the financial problems that we've been talking about but I do wonder from an artistic standpoint what we might see going forward with that
1: that does make sense Andrea because I could also imagine a landscape where we can go back out but there's nothing cool on right yeah like nothing cool coming to town so people are going to start having parties exactly
2: yeah 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 another thing you have to think about is this and some people might be upset with me for saying this but (laughs) Underground music never really made money. That's why it's underground music. There's a very specific kind of person that goes to hear cool music, and I love them. But to play the cooler things, I had to take many pay cuts, which was totally fine. Mm-hmm. Every time I played the lowest paying thing, it was the best party, and it's totally worth doing. You know, for these venues, everybody kind of has to work together on it, too. The owner of the building has to not be a jerk. You know, the promoter has to not be a jerk. The promoter also has to let themselves make a little bit of money and not lose their ass (laughs) because they want to book something cool. They have to pick one. People have to stop asking for guest list and pay the $10 or whatever, or support the artist and buy their merch. Some artists need to stop complaining about the fee that they're being offered. Sometimes you have to play the little person's party to help the little person and their party grow, some people, like, they they expect a little bit too much, and some people should get more. There has to be transparency and understanding in the underground community.
1: I guess it's hard to say, because you don't want to say, like, oh, if you're offered a, a good fee, you should not take the fee, but someone who's getting a huge fee, you know, Just a couple hundred dollars less could really help the uh, other DJs. Yeah,
2: and I know a lot, like, and honestly, I've left certain agencies for this. There will be some young up-and-coming girls that want to book me so bad because I'm so great. That sounds so (laughs) obnoxious, but you know what I mean. (laughs) And my agent will be like... My no, I love my agent now, by the way, she would never do this, but I've had agents in the past will just be like, no, you need to ask for more. And in my head, I'm like, I've been that girl, you know, and like it would make my whole life if this person had played when I asked, even though like I couldn't afford more than a certain amount. I think with the underground, people need to understand what goes into actually building a scene ecosystem. I believe in it. I'm here to help whoever do whatever if I can. Because I do think that it will work itself out in the end. And I think that people are going to buy the empty spaces or run the empty spaces that are left behind when all the clubs close. Because look at 285 Kent and all of those places, Emily, you know, (laughs) that was all out of recession. A lot of these really newer up and coming DJs that are killing it right now. They're also making so much music for Bandcamp Day and all the stuff, just putting out tunes like crazy Because they have nothing else to do right now because their jobs are gone. And I think that when things start up, they're just going to have so much music out that they're going to have fans. Especially in the local scenes here. Everybody wants to support them. So I think that for for the newer kids, they're going to kill it. But in a totally different way than the last generation did.
0: So Jess, while you've been stuck at home, have you been making music? Is there kind of a shift towards... Producing
2: versus DJing right now? I am inspired because I think that there's been a ton of talk about how terrible labels are and how terrible Spotify is and all of the stuff. So I had, which you have written about back in the day, um, a compilation series called Magic City. Everyone, check it out. It's excellent. <laughs> it is. And I didn't do it last year because I was working on my album, which came out, and then I never got to tour that. It's been like a year. But that I'm flipping into a label and hoping to help some people get their stuff out and mm-hmm. I actually do have a release coming out on October 23rd just of a single that I'm putting out. It's funny like the past couple things I did there were all these deadlines and pressure I started getting like very corporate with a management team that I was on but Now I don't have all these deadlines and and I can kind of finish music without somebody emailing me every five minutes when it's going to be done because we have to tell agents and agents have to tell clubs that doesn't exist right now. So it's been really fun to make stuff that I just don't have that in the back of my head Um, getting back to my roots. And Jess, how can people help support you and your music? If you have a job, throw some artists you like some money, it can save them. I can't even begin to tell you, man, the first month of this shit, someone bought my album for like an insane amount of money. They like saved my life. I don't think that people understand how much money we're not making right now. You really can make a difference by helping someone out, spreading the word, posting their stuff. It helps. It actually makes a difference. Alright,
0: well, Jubilee, it's been a pleasure as always. We thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank and you for having we look me. Forward to being able to hit the dance floor with you on the decks once again.
2: I cannot wait.
0: We'll be right back with our next guest, Shudi Kumar, to talk about how she's been helping musicians organize find work and solidarity in the pandemic. In the meantime, if you like what you're hearing, head to Apple Podcasts to leave us a rating or review, and subscribe to our Substack to get new episodes of The Culture Journalist straight to your inbox.
1: Yo, Hey guys, welcome back. Um, We just spoke to Jubilee and got a pretty good sense of some of the challenges DJs are facing while adapting to an industry that has moved temporarily online. Now we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about how, though this has been an incredibly trying time for musicians, it's also been a time of great innovation, especially when it comes to musicians coming together and using the internet to find new ways to support each other.
0: One of those artists is our next guest, Shruti Kumar. She is a composer and producer based in LA, whose work spans from TV and film to pop to the concert world. She's collaborated with everyone from Yoko Ono to Vampire Weekend to No Doubt. She's also an emergent voice in the world of musicians' advocacy. And at the onset of the pandemic, she helped found the new platform Sound Travels, which started as a kind of job board for out-of-work musicians in the pandemic and has since become part social network, part grassroots community, and part educational resource for musicians and others working in the industry. Shruti, thanks so much for coming on the show.
3: Thanks for having me. Let me say I love what you guys are doing. Uh, it's so important to have so many of these conversations that you guys are starting, and they don't really exist on other journalism platform. So thank you for what you're doing.
1: Thank you so much. So we know that the idea of sound travels grew partly out of your own experiences navigating the pandemic as a musician. Can you walk us through the sound travels origin story? Like what was navigating the early days of the pandemic like for you?
3: Absolutely. So when lockdown first started, I was actually in London, I went there almost a year ago to the day now um, and had been doing a composer residency with a company called Spitfire Audio and also working out of another studio called Strongroom Studios, uh, producing some projects and working on my own record. And I had some big sessions lined up for April, which obviously got halted, but unlike The scenario would have been if I had been in L.A. with my home studio since I was working out of external studios in London. I was really in a bind uh, myself because I was working out of a kitchen, essentially, for the beginning parts of the pandemic. And yeah, it sort of started almost selfishly because I had spent all these months working on my record and I had these orchestra sessions coming up and... Literally the night before the session, the studio manager emailed me. Uh, It was right before national lockdown saying, hey, we can't really accommodate the session. It was 2 a.m. We don't have enough staff uh, that's comfortable coming in. So the effort was first born out of just trying to mobilize my own project. Mm -hmm. And then as I started doing that, it became very clear that alongside all these musicians I was supposed to be working with, most of my musician player friends were just available all of a sudden. So my pool of options had grown in a way because a lot of people's tours were canceled gigs were canceled everyone was at home all of a sudden and needing work uh so i thought okay there's so many of us who have projects that need to continue and so many more players that are just available to do those projects so there should be just some kind of connector between the people producing projects and the people available to play on them. So that was the very humble beginning, just making a database of players that were available. So I was trying to get all of their information and all of our information as people making records uh, just in one place so people could find each other. So. It became sort of like a social network then. What then started to happen, though, is it became apparent that the problem ran much deeper than just connecting people to work because the intricacies of recording at home are far and wide and the main being that it's very expensive or it can be very expensive and seem daunting to set up a viable recording setup at home. Um, I have been a composer and worked in post and production for a while so I'm lucky that I had accumulated the gear over the years to be able to continue even with very minimal tools. Mm -hmm. Um, Also just the knowledge and experience but there's a lot of people who have never had the opportunity to set up their home rig because they always had work in bigger studios or on stages and with other tech and engineers so the educational element of it also became apparent. So what was wonderful to see in that time was people onboarding to our community were also from their homes with more availability, creating smaller videos, just kind of walking through every step of home audio, Uh, Mm. be it from organizing, file naming, file delivery, things that we take for granted, but they're so important, especially when things are remote, to how to set up a rig on a budget, um, the essentials that you might need. And then it just became also apparent that um, even with all this knowledge, it's still kind of hard to assume that everybody can shift their resources to make a budget for this stuff, even though, in theory, it will increase income if they're able to do it.
0: Huh. So then how did the platform evolve from there?
3: So, from that conversation was born a kind of safe space for musicians to talk about problems that were already existing in the industry that were being uncovered now Mm -hmm. in this restructuring of our lives and work, and how certain people were better set up to proceed. In the pandemic. So, Mm -hmm. I think the beauty of Sound Travels is that it's run by musicians and for musicians, and the conversations we have feel safe because there aren't any third party music business entities involved yet. So, people are slowly starting to feel safe to say, hey, look, I live with five roommates, or I'm a parent, and no matter how much money I were to have to devote to this, it still wouldn't be perfect. And also, The way that I was paid didn't allow for any extra investment in this time. So obviously this correlates to gender gaps and racial gaps in the industry as well. If you just look at the people responding and who has what problems, etc. So we suddenly realized that the conversation was a lot more important than just getting people hired because if we're if we have this opportunity to get people hired we also have an opportunity to get everyone hired with equal probability you know uh just level the playing field a little more it's really cool that
1: you sort of started the platform with this very simple idea in mind of hey i need to find people who can work on this and then you clearly struck a chord and then it evolved into this platform for larger conversations. Yeah, What was the initial response to the project? Were you surprised by how many people were into it?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think also I have to give a shout to the people who helped me. Uh, we were all over the world at the time. Our web developer was in New York. My partner was in Australia. Emily Ratzis and Prue Reesley are the two of them also I'm the kind of person that when (laughs) disaster strikes I need to (laughs) do something Mm -hmm. actionable otherwise I'll go insane so the idea was born on like a Monday and by the following Monday we were already at least going on socials to kind of spread the word and I think everybody was just panicking in the beginning Mm -hmm. because I mean for a lot of us, as you know, musicians don't sign yearly contracts or whatever. We're project to project, and though some of us had scheduled work for the next year, once that went away, that the money just goes away too. It's not like you still get paid because you signed a contract, you know. So people had planned on income that was no longer there. Also, this was the beautiful part: people wanted to help if they could. Um, so we started first on Instagram, and what was really cool is people just started sharing pictures of themselves at their home rigs and lockdown spaces just to kind of make everyone feel more comfortable about it Um, because not everybody was in their ideal setting. you know. And so people just kind of showing, hey, look, we're working on these projects. But I think the surprises came from people who were kind of like A-listers, people who I thought would just jump on board right away saying, hey, I don't feel comfortable sharing my apartment. I don't want people to see how I really live. I don't want to show people that this is what I have to work with because I'm afraid it will hurt my chances of getting hired. Also, Mm -hmm. I'm afraid that I don't know how to record myself. Um, I've never had to use Pro Tools before. It was really important that we got that kind of feedback early because I think all of us would have assumed that all of these people would just tap in, you know, but it was really important to see like, oh, yeah, why should everybody know everything? What other kinds of issues has it helped illuminate? Now, there's no denying all of the hard work that everybody does in making one track, you know? Especially remote work, now everything is logged and recorded, and you see the work that everybody has to do when they're self engineering. I think for a long time in music, people have gotten away with not crediting properly or assuming all these things will just be there without really talking about fair treatment and, you know, labor issues as well. So that was the biggest surprise. So I think that really the whole thing has just been shifting our mindset to kind of roll with the punches and not claim broad goals, but more the goal is to use it as a, almost a social study in a way to see what problems arise, what we didn't know before, and kind of try to attack them all in the most detailed, uh, directed way possible. I think, um, It was awesome to see everybody jump on board just out of solidarity in the beginning, uh, just because people needed connection, too. I mean, music is also a really human thing, right? A social thing, if you will. Um, So a lot of us get most of our joy being in the studio with others and playing on stage with others. And so I think in the early months, just the need to connect and um, show support was a big, awesome surprise.
0: You know, one thing that that's really has struck me uh, from talking to you about this is how there's this kind of disparity in access to technology, information, knowledge. Yeah, you know, it's really it's really shaken up the way in which musicians can really be kind of like siloed according to their skill sets. Sure, how that like really reinforces a lot of the institutions and hierarchy in the music industry. Absolutely. And what, what's what's really interesting is this situation really upends this narrative that oh you can you can make everything on your phone now you can make everything on your laptop you don't need a studio like you know the joy of the technology of course you know and and then on the other hand that that's that's not in fact the case I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about what these actual needs are and um how you guys are using technology to further democratize that process in a way it really hasn't been
3: Sure. So I love that you asked this question, actually, because um, I actually very much advocate that you can do a lot with your phone and you can do a lot with a USB mic and you can do a lot with a laptop if you have it. Now, yes, of course, you need to have a laptop or an iPad or something like that to get off the ground. But the gap that I find most alarming is the knowledge gap, because yes, technology is very expensive and, you know, you get into heavy-duty studio gear, which I'm fortunate enough to have budgeted for over the past several years, you know, and that was a conscious decision to budget for it because it's no small feat, right?
0: But also, it it took you years.
3: It took me years, and I had to make a plan. I had to decide, okay, this is what I want to do, and I'm going to have to work towards it and raise money for myself to invest in myself this way. But if you have a career that's touring all the time and playing in big sessions, then there's no reason for you to have to undergo that financial process, right? So- I think the knowledge gap is the biggest one because, you know, it's funny, learning on the job how to use all that fancy stuff has also enabled me to use not fancy stuff better. Uh, I've worked on so many bigger records even where we've used iPhone audio sometimes. And I find that the knowledge gap stems from also just a fear of like some implicit idea that... We need to be in a fancy setting and, you know, tech and engineering is for the people who've spent their whole lives doing it. But truly, I think, you know, we're all figuring it out. Um, And so I think making it feel safer to explore in that way has been a big important step, letting people know like, hey, maybe you can't afford this stuff now, but what do you have? Let's see how we can help you work with it. We try to address every kind of level of work um, just to let everyone know what their possible entry points are now. And then we also talk through, you know, buying on a budget. Uh, If you need to invest in your future income in this way, these are the things you should try to get and these are the cheapest options for them.
0: And so you and Sound Travels have also been working with some technology companies to actually provide some of the software and hardware for people that might not otherwise be able to access it due to financial reasons or otherwise, right?
3: Right. We started this, which we're still uh, figuring out the first round, but these studio kit giveaways where we've had a lot of Uh, audio hardware and software companies donate some plugins and samples and gear to us to be able to send out to people in need, depending on what they need. So we put out a questionnaire and a survey, which was also great for us research wise. We wanted to also see what happens if we can get the basic setups necessary to some people who simply can't afford even the most basic ingredients now to see if that paired with the knowledge um, would show a substantive difference. And we reached out to a bunch of companies that we've all worked with individually um, and a lot of people in the community as well with extra gear and resources who have offered to donate. If they can't donate gear, just donate money so we can round out the kits. Um, and that's been really exciting. To uh, We put up a survey, a questionnaire um, on our website for a couple weeks and got close to 75 responses or something like that from all over the world and all over the countries.
0: Do, do you know about like how many different countries you guys are in right now?
3: We're also international, right? We have people from all over the world, not just LA. So all countries were in varying levels of lockdown and studios were open, closed, different rules, et cetera. I think we're in at least 10 countries now. Um, most notably here, the UK, Australia, Germany, France, Spain, Brazil, India, Zimbabwe, we have Madagascar. I mean, we have a lot of... Wow. uh, It's a lot, but it's surprising. Um, So anyway, we're hoping to get these baseline kits out to 20 people as soon as we can get them together. And then using that and being very transparent about that, see if we can build out a more sustainable way of addressing the gear issue in conjunction with the... Knowledge issue, because again, I think that for me, the biggest noticeable factor has been the fear of entering because of uh, education or mm-hmm. experience. Uh, when, when really, it's kind of just lifting the veil on the fact that we all learned this stuff on the job.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting because it. What I'm hearing from you and from others, and you know what we're seeing, like Neva and the live industry do it the way that all of these different communities are coming together really seems to be like subverting this narrative of competition in the music industry right now.
3: Yeah. That's the beautiful optimistic part. Um, It's that's really well said, subverting the competition in the music industry. I'm really hoping this is a time for enhanced collaboration and community, but it should be said that while musicians are really stepping up to the bat and helping each other, and creating programs and platforms um the amount that we have to do there is is quite a lot and it's because (laughs) it's because the infrastructure for arts and culture here is almost non-existent right um i mean coming back from london during this pandemic and you know london has its own bag of problems but even just comparing the uk to the us in terms of um support for the arts uh was, is kind of shocking to me, having <laughs> experienced that transition during the pandemic. And so while it's amazing that we're all extending ourselves in this community-oriented way, um, it's not necessarily sustainable because with the resources we have um, and the bandwidth we have, and now with work sort of slowly returning, um, we're going to burn out, right? So I've been doing a lot of talking with people in the UK, actually, who've started a sort of a campaign called hashtag broken record it's sky tom gray um and i talked to him a lot just to see how we can mobilize conversation like labor conversations regarding creative workers um with american governments even starting with la city council and stuff like that and a shocking response to talking about creative workers right now is that you know there's so much going on in the u.s um talking about the creative industries is kind of an elite Problem, um, and we have to be careful with conversations of gentrification, et cetera, which is all true, except that, you know, the elephant in the room is that actually the majority of the creative industry are wor- working class, right?
0: What obstacles are you seeing musicians facing when it comes to trying to make a living in an industry that has gone fully on the internet now?
3: So there are a lot of different lanes of music. There is producing and making records and composing. There's film music. There's performing. There's teaching. There's all these things. I think that the biggest challenge in restructuring Payment Right now and making a living definitely falls on the live music industry um, the most because everyone has had to shift their performances uh, online, which is tricky. I mean, of course, on, if you're a bigger artist, sometimes you might be seeing bigger audiences than you could have ever imagined because everyone's logging on. But if you are an indie artist um, moving your shows online, Along with the tech challenges there and making sure that your shows are translating in a way that you feel represents you, there's also the dual pronged issue of how do I charge for this, right? So, Mm, um,
0: totally, yeah. I
3: mean, you can link to your merch and all that stuff, but it's a totally different experience. It's kind of similar to the record store experience that's kind of gone online because you know gone are the days when we used to be able to sadly walk through Amoeba and see all of our genres in our periphery and see, you know, Harry Nilsson and Nine Inch Nails and, you know, Joanna Newsom in the same Mm -hmm. (laughs) line of vision. And that was so cool, right? And then that's the whole experiential part of discovering and buying music that same way. I mean, if you're not going to a venue and getting your drinks from the bar and passing by the merch table and also engaging with the players on the stage, I mean, it's a totally different experience for audience too, right? It's a crazy challenge right now for artists and musicians to be able to recreate that online in a way that's meaningful. I mean, everybody quickly shifted to Instagram Live and all this stuff, which was amazing, but it was mostly musicians supporting other musicians on that, right? Because how, if you're indie, do you get the masses to log on to your shows? Um, Mm -hmm. If not through these third-party platforms that are wonderfully starting to pop up, but then like, again, the real challenge will be charging for the stuff in the way that we charge for shows and venues. But then I think people are slowly starting to come back to producing records and film content, et cetera. It's just, again, access, making sure you're the one getting hired. So while competition is being negated, it's still like a different (laughs) landscape to make sure you're positioned to be a part of those existing jobs now. Um, And that's also shifted to podcasts like this, um, scoring podcasts, playing on podcasts, things like that. So it's definitely restructured income. um, And of course, teaching is a big one now and all that, but.
1: And what are some of the positives of this time?
3: The main positive, I think, is that the music industry is banding together. And the more we band together as a community and talk about our issues and share our struggles, um, the more we can share that reality with our audiences and people who aren't musicians so they can really understand, support us from their side too. And I also think the big positive now is because all these struggles are being uncovered, There's no way in good conscience that we can proceed without addressing those problems, too. So, we'll come out of this time hopefully better than we were before, like treating everybody equally, having players and engineers and all the people involved be better respected and taken care of um, and valued for their very important contributions to this multi billion dollar industry, right? So,
0: do you think there are more opportunities? I mean, you were just saying a few minutes ago about how there's a shift to, you know, scoring for podcasts, scoring for film and television commercials, all this kind of work that one can do from home. But I can also see that then maybe creating like an oversaturation point that is like everybody going to be vying for a limited number of opportunities because, of course, you know, availability. You see Netflix shows getting canceled and stuff now. Right, so, right. or is it going to help more evenly distribute those opportunities?
3: The oversaturation conversation, I could argue, even existed before a pandemic, uh, as things have been going digital. So I think that the beauty of that, and this is like a the main part of that whole conversation, is that you know, it's easier to access audiences now. Um, you could make a podcast that takes off, you can make an independent web series that takes off if if it does well. I mean, people will always argue that YouTube and Spotify for all of all of their many, many issues, have gotten people worldwide audiences that they didn't have before. So I think, yes, the oversaturation problem is is one, but it already was one. I don't see it getting worse now. I do see the number of paid opportunities decreasing. So the conversation should more be that all of these endeavors are paying better, you know, and you don't have some that pay tons and some that pay a little. There should be some sort of uh, rule for the way that digital spaces operate with arts um, and creative content that makes it viable. But the big positive too is that I'm seeing more and more people step up and have the confidence to create and share their work more than maybe before the pandemic. When you know there's this joke running around the music community now that we all have hard drives filled with ideas that we never released because we were scared. And now all of a sudden there's this heightened sense of pride. I think, and everybody's trying to get their music out and share it and a lot of those inhibitions are going away. So I think we'll see a rise in the diversity and quality of creative content. Also, as we're further removed from these sort of false rules that mainstream distributors of music have put on us, like things have to sound this way and be made this way, et cetera. I'm seeing a lot more adventurous art going into the world now. As far as a more
1: unified music labor force, what are the Biggest labor issues that the pandemic is bringing to light, and that you think people need to tackle first.
3: This this is such a loaded but wonderful question. I
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, and again saying that I'm coming back from the UK in the middle of this pandemic. There's just some fundamental stuff that's lacking. Um, people may argue this, but my opinion is that there are no well-functioning, comprehensive unions for musicians and so many other creative workers in the states, like writers. You know, and directors and all these people, producers in Hollywood, No, they've, they've really depended on their unions um, for a lot of the great change that's happened over the past five years in Hollywood. But musicians, we really are at a major loss there. Now, the argument for unions in music is a very complicated one because it goes into package deals and the way that budgets are distributed to make music by labels, by production companies, et cetera. There's this sort of subcontracting notion of music that makes it hard to get away with having a well-oiled union. Um, These are conversations that I'm having quite a bit now. But the reality is it's a problem because even within the music industry, when we're talking about this stuff, you know, everybody's sort of pointing fingers being like, well, writers get no writer's share, songwriters, uh, why aren't producers sharing more of their fees? Now, producers might be like, hey, we're not getting the fees you think we're getting. I don't know where you mm. think we're getting these fees, but we want to be treating our writers and players better. But the resources we're given are so little that even when we do try to split our fees, it's really just meager and, and also almost just like a token of good faith rather than anything that's providing. For everybody's income meaningfully. So I think the more these conversations are happening, the more we're realizing like, okay, um, is the burden really on all of us in the supply chain? Or does there have to be a bigger reckoning from the higher ups to be like, hey, look, all of the musicians are trying to fix this for each other? but with so little protection and resources. I mean, you look at other creative industries, they can strike. How can we strike? You know, once music is in the world, you can't just take away your content from everywhere. Um, we can't just like stop showing up to shows. We can't stop showing up to work like other industries. You know what I mean? Stop contributing.
0: So just, to, just to clarify, so like if you wanted to take down your music from Spotify, you couldn't?
3: No, I think you can, but it's just harder. If you're on a label, that's a whole different conversation. Um, mm-hmm. Even indie labels. So if you're completely independent... Uh, you can theoretically take all your stuff down. And even with if you're on a label, you know, the labels control most of that. But I'm sure there's a way if you try. But you'd have to be like a really big artist. And even them, I think they'd have a really hard time doing that, especially if they're on a major label. Um, but the issue is, is with pirating and the internet, like once it's out there, undoubtedly somebody has it. You know what I mean? It's not going to be erased race forever. Um, once something's out, it's out. Somewhere that content is no longer controllable, and that's not necessarily the biggest problem because I think that's just the nature of it. It's just we have to make a landscape that makes that work um, financially for the people creating the content. So the the union thing is a problem just because we don't really know what our protections are, and we don't really know how to use our uh, labor power for any kind of change except for redistributing our own resources, right? Which is which is going to run into a wall. So. I definitely think that we have to get more government protection and accountability for arts and culture and sort of like a greater reckoning, even in a city like Los Angeles, right, that boasts its creative capital. And all of us are, you know, I mean, L.A. is a creative city. We're so proud of it. So many people move here for that, to work in that industry. And I don't think people really realize that the more visible members of those communities are not the majority. um, And not everybody is earning the way that everybody thinks they are. So you can see someone who seems very successful on paper, but really they're still living paycheck to paycheck like anybody else, or maybe worse than everybody else. You know. So I think a a great first step is to get our local governments to start understanding the role that the creative economies play in our city budget and our um, state earnings and all that stuff and sort of Demand more protection. You know, what is the music industry doing for our regional economy and our state economy and of course our national economy? And um, I think a city like LA could be a really great starting point to send that kind of a ripple throughout the rest of the country in terms of finally honoring musicians and creative workers as, as a real industry, you know? And <laughs> in, the, in the UK, they do have a union. They also have a lot more advocacy projects that are seeing the light of day in their regional governments. Because that base understanding that creative workers are workers is not something that they have to prove, and here we still are proving that.
0: Absolutely, and you know, I think it's because all over the world, the U.S. is is seen as you know the hub for music and film and you know arts and entertainment, and that's where the industries are. But it's almost like it's sort of hollow from the inside out because it's tied to capitalism and industry here in a way that it's just not in other countries. it always struck me how we don't have things like a culture minister or a department of arts and culture the way that pretty much all of our peer countries do.
3: Yeah, you're right. It is tied to capitalism in a way that it isn't in other countries because that government infrastructure exists for the arts. So I do think that, you know, while we do have to ask ourselves, where is all the money coming from for music and who's controlling it and are they musicians and who are they and how did they get into it? And That's one fight and conversation. But the other one is the parallel one, which is the one that's urging our governments to get involved in any way to protect us. Um, They're not the same conversation. So they kind of have to work in tandem. And I think that the more we can get our local governments to advocate for us, the better equipped we'll be to address the bigger companies that are running music right now.
0: How do you see the pandemic impacting the industry long-term? Like, what are some ways in which it might change for the worse? And what are some ways it might strengthen it or help
3: it change for the better? If we are able to fight for it, then hopefully the pandemic won't just, like, erase it. (laughs) Arts and culture. I mean, there is this sort of existential dread that everyone has. It's like, is there going to be any art after this is over? I mean, what's going to happen to museums and venues? And is it going to even exist or is it just going to be on our phones? But I do think that what does exist is going to be a lot less controlled by outside forces and a lot more indicative of what people are really feeling creatively and um, expression-wise. So it's a hard question to say because I, I don't. we don't know. It really depends on our government. It really depends on our companies. It really depends on us um, and our ability to fight. And people have to value us too and listen to us because – it will be the last industry to start again fully, (laughs) Um, if possible. And all of the backlog is just unimaginable. I say this all the time. I don't even think LA itself has fully wrapped its head around the impact it's going to have on the economy. Not even close. Yeah. It's like a domino effect here. I hope that there's still an infrastructure for it to exist for everybody um, and not just musicians for musicians, right? But Right now, I see most of the work being done there by musicians themselves, and again, like I said before, that's not really fair, and it, we don't have the resources to do it to the degree that it needs to be done and to save it. You know, so I hope that all this great content being made now and great music being written um is able to reach audiences and and help everybody enter this conversation. So we come out of this with a music industry that's more equal that's has less barriers to entry that doesn't have huge gender and race gaps in it. I hope that this time spent reckoning with the structural problems in the industry go away after this pandemic because really it's just so in our faces now that it's unconscionable to imagine the music industry continuing forward the same way. So really the positive will be that it will be different Mm -hmm. (laughs) in whatever form it exists afterwards.
0: Trudy, can you tell us how can musicians or anyone else in the industry who's listening get involved with Sound Travels and how can they follow your work?
3: I know you actually have an album coming out soon, right? Yes, I do have an, uh, an album coming out soon. I'm supposed to have a recording session, an orchestra session for it finally in London uh, at the end of the month. And I'm hoping they don't go into second lockdown before that happens. Um, but yes, my work is at my website, shrutikumar.com and Sound Travels is www.soundcantravel.com and we're at Travel on Instagram um, and the best way to reach out to us is you can email us through the website we're really responsive or even DM us on socials if you want to get involved in anything or have ideas part of what we take pride in is that we take feedback from everybody and really try to address everything that's brought to our attention just because it's impossible for us to know everything so the joy of it has been learning about issues from other people engaging with us as well.
0: Sridi Kumar, thank you so much for coming on the show and for all the awesome work that you're doing. It's been heartening to follow the rise of sound travel and all of your advocacy over the past six months.
3: Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you guys for having me.
0: That's it for our show. Today's episode was produced and edited by me, Andrea Dominic, and Emily Friedlander. This week's music features the song Wine Up by Jubilee, featuring Hood Celebrity, and our theme music, composed by Mark Donica. To check out more from Jubilee, Shruti Kumar, and Sound Travels, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts to help support independent journalism.